This program is presented by Birch Gold Group, the precious metal IRA specialists. Good morning. In today's headlines, the U.S. Senate wants government intelligence on the origins of COVID-19 declassified. A bill to do just that passed with unanimous consent last night. We'll hear what senators have to say about it. Pfizer's clinical trials for the COVID vaccine were in the crosshairs yesterday. A Trump-appointed judge listens to arguments in a vaccine whistleblower case. Find out what happened. A firefighter dies in Buffalo, New York. He was trapped inside a burning building that partially collapsed. Dramatic footage shows the structure coming down and knocking firefighters to the ground. Find out what officials think caused the blaze. Some institutions say obesity is now a national security threat. We looked at why and asked a doctor how to eat healthier. And a 12-year-old New Jersey boy completes his mission of surfing for a thousand days straight. His motivation, he wanted to raise money for local homeless shelters and those in need. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, and I'm Evelyn Lee. Today's Thursday, March 2nd. The Senate passed a resolution yesterday to overturn a Biden administration retirement investment rule. The rule would allow retirement plan managers to invest based on ESG considerations. ESG stands for Environmental, Social and Governance. The retirement funds in question collectively invest $12 trillion on behalf of over 150 million Americans. The funds are supposed to be placed in investments that bring the highest return possible. But critics say the Labor Department's rule would change that, allowing investors to prioritize the ESG agenda over profit. Supporters of the rule argue that it's not a mandate that it allows but does not require the consideration of ESG factors. The joint resolution to overturn the ESG rule was authored by Republican Senator Mike Braun. It passed on a vote of 50 to 46, with Democratic Senators Joe Manchin and John Tester voting with Republicans. It was already passed by the House on Tuesday and will now head to President Biden's desk. The administration, however, has issued a veto threat. And the Senate is also moving to have government intelligence related to the origins of COVID-19 declassified. A bill introduced by Republican Senators Josh Hawley and Mike Braun passed with unanimous consent. The two senators are now, are now calling on the House to pass it. Here's Senator Josh, Josh Hawley speaking with Jesse Waters on Fox News yesterday. We need the House to pass it, Jesse, and then we can get this thing done. Listen, the American people, it, it's past time. Let's yeah. show them what the government has. Let everybody see for themselves. Let everybody read it. The bill is called the COVID-19 Origin Act of 2023. It specifically aims to investigate the possibility that the virus leaked from a lab in Wuhan, China. Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown made a request for unanimous consent of the bill. That request was granted without objection. Unanimous consent enables a bill to pass without a recorded vote. Senator Mike Braun wrote on Twitter, the House needs to pass this bill to let the American people see the facts. The bill was reintroduced on Monday after the Department of Energy concluded the pandemic most likely arose from a lab leak. The FBI came to a similar conclusion. The bill would require the Biden administration to declassify all information in the government's possession on the most likely origins of COVID-19. 
A hearing in a COVID vaccine whistleblower case took place yesterday. Plaintiff Brooke Jackson alleges that violations occurred during a Pfizer vaccine clinical trial. NTD's Daniel Monahan brings us more on the developments. Whistleblower Brooke Jackson worked for Ventavia, a subcontractor for Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine phase three clinical trial. Jackson says the company failed to properly report adverse events and keep all participants blinded. Jackson worked on clinical trials for 18 years. She was fired on the same day she alerted the FDA to the trial issues. Jackson later sued Ventavia and Pfizer for alleged violation of the False Claims Act. That legislation makes it illegal to knowingly make a false or fraudulent claim for payment or approval from the government. Here's Jackson on how the hearing went. I felt like it went really well. Uh, the judge was very receptive to either side, asked a lot of questions. Jackson hopes the case will send a clear message to the FDA. That we're not going to stand for this, that we do need safe, effective products and they need to regulate. That's their job. Jackson's attorney, Robert Barnes, criticized the vaccine trials after the hearing. This is a fraud that is leading to the deaths of tens of thousands at least, according to the government's own data, and leading to millions of disabling injuries across America, again, according to the government's own data. The attorney says the next step is opening up discovery. Co-counsel Warner Mendenhall says he aims to depose Pfizer CEO Albert Borla if the judge greenlights discovery. He has said that, you know, he's uh, got a safe and effective vaccine where the benefits outweigh the risks. And it's clearly not true anymore. Mendenhall says the latest data shows the vaccine is not meeting the criteria for an emergency use authorization anymore. This is a very risky drug for people to be taking now. Under the False Claims Act, U.S. citizens can file suit on behalf of the government. Lawsuits are brought under the act against people or entities accused of defrauding the government. Jackson argues that the U.S. government wouldn't have purchased the vaccines had it known of the violations. The suit claims that the government was therefore defrauded. Pfizer says the FDA authorized the vaccine after hearing from Jackson, who informed the regulator of issues she witnessed. U.S. lawyers have backed the companies, filing a statement in support of dismissal, saying that Ventavia ran a small enough number of sites that fraud wouldn't have affected the FDA's decision to grant emergency use authorization. If the case survives the motions to dismiss, then discovery would move forward. A trial is set for 2024. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Is the Justice Department applying the law equally? Republican senators grilled Attorney General Merrick Garland yesterday. How did he respond? And today's Melina Weiskopf has more from Capitol Hill. DOJ Attorney General Merrick Garland appearing for the first time during this Congress before the Senate Judiciary Committee, GOP critics accusing Garland of not applying the law equally. Merrick Garland sadly has been the most political attorney general we've ever had. He's used the Department of Justice and the FBI as a weapon. And right after telling me this, Senator Cruz launched a heated exchange with Garland over what appears to be the DOJ's lack of prosecuting people for protesting outside of Supreme Court justices' homes who were opposing the overturn of Roe versus Wade. Here's a look at that exchange. Say no. The answer's no. You know it's no. I know it's no. Everyone in this, in this hearing room knows it's no. You're not willing to answer a question. Have you brought a case under this statute, yes or no? As far as I know, we haven't. And what we have done is defended to the lies of the justice. So how do, you decide, US how do you decide which criminal statutes the, the DOJ enforces and which one it doesn't? 
And the Republicans pointed to a law which states that anyone who tries to influence justices' decisions should be prosecuted. And on this topic, Garland repeatedly responded that the G DOJ has to prioritize prosecuting violence. At one point, Garland gave senators updates on their investigation into the January 6th Capitol breach, a point that Senator Cotton seized on to make his point. Related to the January 6th attack on the Capitol, we are disrupting, investigating, and prosecuting violence and threats of violence. You've dedicated million of man hours to study videotape, to do forensic analysis of computers and devices, to go knock and conduct interviews. You, you can't allocate just a few agents to look at people's social media accounts and say they were president outside of a justice home. And with many Republicans accusing the DOJ of acting with political bias, I asked Democrat Senator John Ossoff if he feels that these Republican accusations are warranted. Here's what he said. Do you think it's valid, their argument, or do you think they're just doing this for political purposes? Look, I think every, every senator um, has an obligation to their state and to their constituents to raise matters of concern, matters of principle. And Republican senators also honed in on what they characterize as the DOJ's efforts to target parents who speak up at school board meetings. This comes as over here on the House side, Speaker McCarthy just unveiled the Parents' Bill of Rights. The right to know what's being taught in the school and for you to be able to see uh, the reading materials, right? And the Republican-led House will take this bill up where it is expected to easily pass. However, it will face obstacles in the Democrat-controlled Senate. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. The U.S. approved the potential sale of close to $620 million in new weapons to Taiwan yesterday. That includes missiles for its F-16 fighter jets and related equipment. The sale includes 200 air-to-air -air missiles and 100 missiles that can take out land-based radar stations. It also includes launchers and aircraft interface computers, as well as training and test munitions, technical and logistic support, and spare parts. The move will likely intensify tensions between the U.S. and China. The main contractors are Raytheon and Lockheed Martin, two firms Beijing recently sanctioned. Taiwan's defense ministry reported a second day of large-scale Chinese Air Force incursions today. It reported 19 Chinese aircraft flying in Taiwan's air defense zone on Wednesday and says it spotted 21 aircraft in the last 24 hours. The island's defense ministry thanked the U.S. in a statement today. It says the decision to continue supplying defensive weapons will help maintain stability in the region and that it's fresh proof of solid relations between the U.S. and Taiwan. And last night, seven people aboard a Lufthansa flight traveling from Texas to Germany were injured after their plane ran into major turbulence. The FAA says the brief but severe turbulence happened about 90 minutes after the flight took off from Austin, Texas, when the plane was at about 37,000 feet somewhere over Tennessee. One passenger says it felt like the plane was dropping suddenly. Then she heard glass breaking and people screaming. The flight landed safely at Dulles International Airport in Virginia around 9 p.m. local time. The FAA is investigating the incident. The extent of the injuries to those taken to the hospital is unknown at this time. And more aviation news, a man was arrested for attempting to place an explosive device on an aircraft. It happened after his bag triggered an alarm at a Pennsylvania airport. 
The FBI says 40-year-old Mark Muffley checked a suitcase on Monday for a flight that was heading to Sanford, Florida. The TSA says one of its officials located a suspicious item inside the suitcase. The FBI and bomb technicians determined that the item was a live explosive device. The device had two fuses and powder concealed in wax paper and plastic wrap. After the alarm went off, authorities paged Muffley to report to security at the airport. The man was seen leaving the airport soon afterwards. He was arrested at home later that evening. Officials haven't provided any details on what Muffley's intentions may have been. A firefighter in Buffalo, New York, died in the line of duty yesterday. A four-alarm fire broke out at a costume shop in the city's theater district. Officials say the firefighter was trapped by falling debris inside the building. Those outside were knocked to the ground as a building partially collapsed. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the blaze that took the firefighter's life. A blast likely caused by a backdraft sent plumes of flames and smoke into a Buffalo street on Wednesday. Broken glass and debris were sent flying through plumes of gray smoke, knocking a couple of firefighters down and covering them in a billowing cloud of ash. They were seen scrambling to regain their footing and get control of spraying hoses. Buffalo's fire commissioner says the situation quickly deteriorated and that the firefighter was about 30 or 40 feet inside the commercial building when it partially collapsed. He was reported missing not long after crews arrived at the blaze in the area of 745 Main Street around 10 a.m. local time. A mayday was called due to a structural collapse and an evacuation order was issued. Firefighters were forced to stop searching for their colleague and escape. It took hours for rescuers to recover the fireman's remains. Firefighters saluted as an ambulance took his body away. No other serious injuries were reported. The city's mayor says inspectors deemed the remains of the building unsafe. He ordered an emergency demolition and that flags be flown at half-staff in honor of the fallen firefighter. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. The cause of the fire has not been confirmed yet. An investigation is ongoing. The city's fire commissioner says there have been reports of contractors using torches in the outside of the building, which was under renovation. Officials say the fire could have started from the torches penetrating the brick and mortar and lighting combustible materials materials on the other side of the wall, and that it could have been smoldering for some time already before escalating into an inferno. And coming up, some say obesity is now a threat to national security. What's the connection and how can we eat healthier? That's after the break. Welcome back. The U.S. military has been struggling to recruit new members and their prospects don't look so great. A new report finds that most young Americans are unfit for military service. The report from the Pentagon was cited during a congressional hearing in mid-February. It says 77% of Americans between the ages of 17 and 24 are unqualified physically to enter the armed forces. That's a 6% increase from 2017. One of the major hurdles recruiters now face is obesity. As of 2020, the prevalence of obesity in the, in the adult population hit nearly 42%. CDC statistics also show that 19% of active duty service members suffered from obesity in 2020. That's up from 16% in 2015. 
Last year, a U.S. Army lieutenant general also named other hurdles to recruitment, such as behavioral health problems, criminality and drug use. The challenges have prompted security analysts and some U.S. institutions to declare obesity a threat to national security. And part of the big issue is processed foods and added sugar. What do they do to our body and how can we get that addiction and craving under control? I asked Dr. William Davis, a cardiologist and author of Supergut. Here's an outtake from our interview. So among the big problems that if, if we approach this from the standpoint of the microbiome, that is the microbes that dwell in the 30 feet of gastrointestinal tract, we have lots of challenges. For instance, the use of preservatives. That is these things added like potassium sorbate, uh, sodium benzoate. These things are meant to inhibit the growth of bacteria and molds and fungi in your food. But they also inhibit the growth of microbes in your gastrointestinal tract. And these are indiscriminate. They don't choose bad ones and only kill bad ones. They kill bad ones and good ones. So food preservatives is a big problem. Emulsifying agents. These are agents put in food like ice cream to keep it mixed. You ever have this happen? You let your ice cream thaw and, and then you refreeze it and you have a big ball of ice and solids. And so they add emulsifying or mixing agents like polysorbate 80 or carboxymethylcellulose to keep it mixed. Well, these things also disperse or dissolve the protective mucus barrier in your gastrointestinal tract. That's a problem because the mucus, the slimy stuff that lines your gastrointestinal tract, is protective. It keeps bacteria and food away from intestinal cells. And when you disperse that mucus barrier for a few minutes to hours, it exposes your gastrointestinal tract to microbes and it, increase, it increases the permeability of your intestinal lining such that bacterial breakdown products can enter the bloodstream. And that is a major driver of so much modern uh, disease from type two diabetes to obesity, to autoimmune diseases, to cognitive impairment, to risk for heart disease. So those are just two classes of food additives that have major implications for health. How much of the of the foods in our that we find in the supermarket are actually processed? Well, go to the supermarket and notice that the only unprocessed foods are in the perimeter. That is in the produce area where you find green peppers and uh, oranges and uh, kale, or in the dairy aisle where you find things like, of course, milk or cream, eggs. And of course, in the butchered area where you have meats and fish, and poultry, it's all the, the the rest of the store, which is most of the store. That's all processed food, chips, breakfast cereals, breads, cookies, baking mixes, uh, ready to mix microwavable foods. Those are all processed foods with things added, things taken out. And so when people like us go shopping, we almost never enter the inner aisles. Maybe you do for laundry detergent. Uh, or dishwashing liquid. But for the most part, you stay in the perimeter or go to places like the butcher, go to a green grocer, go to the farmer's market, places where they don't sell you processed foods. So when does addiction come in and how can we control those cravings that a lot of those processed foods lead to? So the two things that drive addiction to food are the gliadin protein-derived opioid peptides that comes from wheat and grains, and the modern changes introduced by agribusiness amplified that effect. So there's a protein in wheat, 
and related proteins in other grains, like the cecalin in rye and the hordine in barley and the zein in corn, that upon digestion are not broken down into single amino acids like other proteins are. They're broken down to peptides, four or five amino acid long fragments, peptides, that act as opioids on the human brain and drive appetite. So wheat and grains are appetite stimulants, potent appetite stimulants. And that's why you can eat a big bowl of pasta or noodles and you're filled to bursting, but you're still oddly hungry. That's the glide and derive opioid peptide effect. And then likewise, sugar is a problem too. It has a cocaine-like effect on your brain, driving desire for more. And so big food likes to use these things. That's where they add components of wheat and grains and sugars to almost all processed foods. Now, the full version, as usual, will be on NTD.com. And he said that wheat, corn, and other grains are dominating processed foods. So what I thought was really interesting is that he says those were never meant for human consumptions in the first place. So when people first started to eat those things, that's when tooth decay became very prevalent. And, you know, Evelyn, digestion is a really complex process. So it does make sense that we need to pay really close attention to what we eat. I agree. That's why I thought I was so insightful. He really told me or told us what to look for. All right, next, surfs up in New Jersey. A 12-year-old boy just finished surfing for a thousand days straight, all to raise money for local homeless shelters and those in need. That's after the break. Welcome back. Let's get to some inspiring news now. A 12-year-old boy in New Jersey is on a mission to help those who are less fortunate. He just finished surfing for a thousand days straight to raise money for local homeless shelters and other nonprofits. Here's the story. 12-year-old Carter Dorley of Brigantine, New Jersey, just accomplished a mission. On February 18th, he finished surfing for a thousand days straight to raise money for the homeless and those who lost their jobs during the pandemic. The boy spoke to NTD about his mission. I think it's helping others and just pursuing what I love. Because I love to surf, so I might as well keep doing it. Dorley did food drives at the local food market. He runs an Instagram account named Carter Catches Waves where he posts daily updates to his surfing challenge. I think I've raised like probably $8,000. This is a guess like $8,000 and 5,000 cane goats. During the 1,000 days, nothing stopped Carter from accomplishing his goal. He continued surfing even when he was hurt or when the weather was bad. So what was the biggest challenge the boy faced during his 1,000-day challenge? I surfed down north uh, in Bradenton. I think it was two feet of snow last year. I had to surf. That was definitely my biggest challenge, freezing. Dorley's parents have been very supportive during the thousand day challenge. We drive him and then we watch him and we video him for his little Instagram that he has and he posts his wave of the day. Um, so there's always somebody here watching him, making sure he's safe. Um, and then we're just here until he's done. The boy's father says he didn't have a surfing coach. He kind of taught himself, um, you know, growing up, ever since they were born, they, they pretty much grew up on the beach, so every day was a beach day for him. He kind of taught himself when he was about five years old. 
The parents say their son has received a lot of positive feedback from the local community for what he's done. I think that it inspires people because um, a lot of people that stopped surfing or maybe they gave up on surfing saw him and they're inspired by his story to get back out there. And I think that also can inspire kids to, you know, see that you can give back to your community no matter how small you are. Um, there's always ways to give back to people. Carter is currently part of the Eastern Surfing Association, the largest amateur surfing association in the world. He says he wants to join the World Surfing League in the future. Reporting by William Huang and Allison Lee, NTD News. Well, you know, Evelyn, surfing depends a lot on the water conditions, so if he surfed for that many days straight, it's likely he saw some really challenging days with some big waves and some easy days. Right, like he said, two feet of snow? Wow, in a thousand days, that's such... Such a long time. Anyway, I'm sure he reached his goal great, and since then, Dorley has donated thousands of dollars to local shelters and global nonprofits. That's pretty amazing. Yes, and another connection to nature in Washington, D.C., the cherry blossoms are early this year. The city is prepping for the peak bloom. The National Park Service says it will take place from March 22nd through the 25th. This was the third warmest winter on record in Washington. That made the peak bloom period difficult to predict. As a result of the earlier bloom, the Cherry Blossom Festival is moving up multiple events planned at the Tidal Basin, which is lined by the cherry trees. Events include a kite festival, a Cherry Blossom 5K run, and a parade. You know, the Cherry Blossom trees were a gift from the mayor of Tokyo this year. It's 111 years ago. Ah, oh, that's a good point. And you know, now there are nearly 4,000 of them. And you know, Evelyn, there are two types that are most common in D.C., the Kwanzan and the Yoshino, which produce the white-pink blossoms. Right, that's the stuff that makes, it looks like white clouds around the tidal basin, right? right. <laughs> when they're in bloom. All right, that's it for today's, today's program. Write us if you want to share your story or have feedback for us. Uh, write us at good morning, good, good morning at entity.com. That's the email address. Shoot us an email if you like. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.